Hello, this is Dr. Paul Sachs, and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Open Forum Infectious Diseases. And today I'm really delighted that I'm joined by Dr. Deborah Cotton. She's Professor of Medicine at Boston University School of Medicine, the Deputy Editor in the Annals of Internal Medicine, and a longtime colleague and friend. And the reason we're getting together today is to discuss a paper that recently appeared in OFID. It's a paper called A Glimpse of the Early Years of the HIV Epidemic, a Fellow's Experience in 2014. Now, in this paper, uh, Drs. Colasante and Armstrong, Dr. Colasante is a first-year fellow at the Emory Program, he describes his experience on the inpatient service at Grady Hospital. And there he saw a large number of patients with untreated HIV, with advanced disease, many with infectious complications, and virtually all of them with CD4 cell counts less than 100. Now, Deborah and I practice in Boston, and we practice in two very different settings. And so I wanted to get Deborah's view of this paper, and then I'll also share with you mine. Deborah, what did you think when you first read this paper? The paper seemed very familiar to me based on my experience practicing now at Boston Medical Center which is a safety net hospital and historically was the Boston City Hospital. A difference for sure is that we actually have recently established an HIV service which cares for patients like those described in this paper as well as patients who are well controlled but have chronic disease manifestations. So inpatient HIV is still a very major focus for us at Boston Medical Center. And we do see patients very similar to these. The breakdown perhaps is a little bit different. We are fortunate to care for many immigrants, including those from Sub-Saharan Africa. And so we have some people who've never been in care at all. But we clearly have many patients who have been in care, fallen out of care, often in and out of prison where care gets interrupted and are not controlled and in fact have late stage HIV with opportunistic infections. Well, it's really interesting that you, you say that because my reaction when I read this paper was to think just how incredibly different his experience is from that of the uh, ID fellows at the Brigham. Here, back in the mid-1990s, once we got effective HIV therapy, our inpatient census of patients with HIV dropped from about 15 to 20 down to about 5, which is our sort of average number now. And a lot of the times these days, uh, these patients are admitted for non-infectious complications, they're admitted for an elective hip surgery or for a totally unrelated reasons such as alcoholic pancreatitis. And really the HIV is a secondary part because almost all of them are virologically suppressed. I will also say that each time we do have a patient who's in the hospital with a sort of classic HIV-related opportunistic infection, it's considered a real learning opportunity for our fellows and even for some of our junior faculty who really have not experienced anything like uh, what he described in his paper. I agree, and I think the other knowledge base that clearly is there at our hospital, and I'm sure at yours too, is the knowledge base that comes from working in global health. So many of our fellows and young faculty have seen opportunistic infections, late-stage HIV infection, but they've seen it in low-resource countries, and that's been a very valuable experience for them, although obviously sad that care is not kept pace in those countries as well. One area that's going to be challenging for us as people who are teaching fellows and for junior faculty is gaining expertise in the management of these complications. I remember that there was a, an 18-month period back in the early 1990s where 
uh, the combined experience of the Brigham and an affiliated group practice incurred uh, about 110 cases of pneumocystis, sometimes multiple cases in the same patient. Mm-hmm. Um, that would never happen today. Uh, we're down to about three or four cases of pneumocystis per year right. in an HIV patient in our hospital. And almost all those people are new diagnoses, people who haven't been in treatment at all. So how are we going to teach this to our fellows? I think back to 40 years ago when I was in medical school, and we had a similar issue at that time with tuberculosis. Tuberculosis by that point had come down to very, very low levels. And it was, in fact, the senior members of infectious disease divisions, pulmonary divisions, who knew anything about the treatment of tuberculosis and especially about the diagnosis. Uh, And they really filled a valuable role. And it, it seems to me that we may see something similar to that. Many of us have been doing this now for so long that we know those diseases inside out. I'm not sure that knowledge will ever fade. Uh, And I think it is a way that we can see a sort of intergenerational educational effort. That's what I'm anticipating. In the same way, I think our younger colleagues have a great deal of knowledge about newer diagnostics that really will help them as well when they don't know uh, from clinical history and exam what something is. I hope that we are going to be able to still have something to offer them. I mean, as the gray hairs grow, you want to think that your your knowledge base is still relevant to what the fellows are learning. And clearly, when there is a case of an acute OI in the hospital, you, we can draw on that experience that we had back in the pre-art era and the experience you're still having at Boston Medical Center. I have another question about the paper. I thought it was fascinating how he concluded by urging us not to forget this subset of patients who don't have access or who choose not to access life-saving therapy. Do you think that there's a risk of that happening? Are are we, as infectious disease and HIV specialists, are we, in fact, not uh, remembering this group? Good question. Well, I think part of the dilemma is that you need more, unfortunately, than great infectious disease doctors. You really need a lot of support services. And I would say one way in which my experience is, is very different from what he's describing, is that I practice in Massachusetts, he practices in Georgia, Medicaid has been really under duress in Georgia over things like HIV drug coverage. We don't have that problem in Massachusetts, and it really illustrated to me how many more resources we have to care for people who are in and out of care, certainly because of incarceration, or who are are newly diagnosed. So I I think um, at a hospital like mine where we provide legal services, we provide adherence management, even a food pantry, we have some resources that I think will help us care for these patients. Oh, I completely agree. And I'll just share with you, I was recently speaking with some colleagues at Tulane, and they also said how difficult it is sometimes just financially for patients to access HIV therapy. And they asked me what we did with our uninsured population. And the reality is in Massachusetts, the uninsured population is quite small these days, thanks to Mitt Romney. And Romney Care. Even though he doesn't want to take credit for it, and now Obamacare. So one other thing he put in his acknowledgement, I don't think I've seen this before, a general thanks to the patients he saw during his rotation. He says, I thank each of the patients who I saw during this two-week consult month and throughout my residency and fellowship who have taught me the pathophysiology of HIV AIDS, but more importantly, the social aspects of the disease. You seen that before in a paper? Well, I'm not sure I've seen it in a paper. I thought it was a lovely way to express gratitude, and I was very moved by that. I think that is one of the things that happens when you're caring for people with a disease that's this severe but also this treatable. 
uh, you make a big difference. And it is a very different relationship with patients. I remember now almost 10 years ago when Jerry Friedland was interviewed for the book on AIDS doctors, Jerry said something like, remember how good it was when there was nothing we could do. And he didn't mean that in a cynical way. He meant we had a relationship with our patients that was very different than we have when we can just rapid fire, give them some drugs and make them all better. So it moved me very much. I was happy to see that. It's really moving away from a kind of paternalistic practice to one that's much more patient-focused. You make a really outstanding point there about the benefit that you give to your patients when you are seeing them at this stage of HIV disease and putting them on effective treatment. It is huge since it's now been almost 20 years since we've had this effective therapy. Sometimes we forget. And also when we debate the when to start question, sometimes sometimes we forget that it's the patients with advanced disease who quantitatively benefit the most from going on antiretroviral therapy. So it's really a very impressive uh, change you can make in their life. Well, Deborah, I really appreciate your spending the time talking with me today about this paper and uh, think that this is going to be a form of a verbal commentary on pieces in OFID in the future. I was happy to be here. Take care.